So on uh, May the 6th, of course, 2023, in a ceremony that hasn't been seen in almost 70 years, the city of London witnessed the coronation of King Charles III and his wife Camilla uh, in an elaborate spectacle full of pomp and ceremony structured around a reformed Protestant worship service that includes Charles taking an oath, being anointed with holy oil, receiving of the coronation regalia, emphasizing the kind of the totality of his kingship, both its spiritual role and his secular responsibilities, uh, and all of that done before a throng of spectators uh, that took to the airwaves or lined the streets to witness the occasion. And I'm telling you guys that for a reason. Because our text for today on this final Sunday of Eastertide deals with a coronation as well. Uh, but one of a very different kind. One that is totally opposite of any coronation ever held in the Western world throughout its history. Because there were no jeweled crowns. Uh, there were no cheering crowds or golden coaches. And yet, as you're going to see this morning, it was the most extraordinary of events. Because even in the absence of all of those symbols of sovereign authority... The one that was elevated to the throne was raised not just to be a king, but the king of kings and the Lord of lords who was and is now and will continue to be reigning from his throne long after the nations of this world are reduced to little more than a distant memory. Uh, And so that takes us to two texts this morning. First, our primary text from the book of Acts chapter 1, and then we're going to flip back to an Old Testament reading from Daniel chapter 7. So first... Uh, Acts chapter 1, and I'm going to be reading to you verses 6 through 11. Listen for the voice of the Spirit. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. And now let's just think that's the end of the story. We actually know what happens immediately next because it was revealed in a vision to the prophet Daniel about 600 years before the incarnation. And that passage comes from Daniel chapter 7 beginning in verse 13. I told him, behold, with those clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Thanks be to God. (coughs) Let's pray. God, our Father, now that that your word has been read and listened to, we ask you to cleanse our minds and hearts of Uh, all those things that may prevent us from actually hearing it. Uh, Empty our hearts of doubt, empty our minds of preconceptions and assumptions, and prepare us, Father, to be ready to accept your truth and able to discern your voice, because we ask it in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So if you hadn't guessed already, today is Ascension Sunday uh, in the liturgical calendar, a day we commemorate uh, as our Lord's assumption back into heaven to his place at the right hand of God the Father. Uh, now, the actual date for the occasion technically was on Thursday past because it always comes exactly 40 days after Resurrection Sunday. But since it always falls during the work week, hardly anybody in the modern church gets together for it anymore. And so... Uh, as a rule, Ascension Day is hardly ever celebrated, if it's even remembered at all, uh, even in this church, which actually is a shame, because at least according to one of the early church fathers, uh, St. Augustine of Hippo, the Feast of the Ascension originated with the apostles, uh, making it one of the oldest continuous feasts practiced by the church, possibly going all the way back to A.D. 68, uh, which is mind-blowing when you think about it, compared to our other Christian holidays. Like, for instance, we don't have any record of the church communally commemorating the birth of Jesus until about 336 A.D. Um, early Christians, of course, universally kept the commemoration of the Lord's Supper uh, in conjunction with uh, the Jewish Feast of Passover, according to their lunar calendar, uh, irrespective of what day of the week it fell on, uh, till about A.D. 135. And you already know that every Lord's Day since that first resurrection is a, a mini-celebration of Easter, but the, the first, I guess, kind of actual, annual, truly just Christian-only holiday to be celebrated was Ascension Day. Um, it even met with the approval of the 16th century reformers who had first kind of uh, threw the baby out with the bathwater and wanted to get rid of all the church feast days because of how they'd been corrupted by the church in Rome, and then they did for a while, until they savaged what was sav salvaged, excuse me, uh, what they called the five evangelical holidays, which were Christmas, Good Friday, Easter, Ascension Day, and then Pentecost. And I think it's important to know that, uh, and I tell you that for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because you know I think it's much more important to know and to follow what the first century church taught and practiced, and what the reformers affirmed, than it is to kind of blindly follow the antics of the, the last century and a half of the modern American church, because uh, you can see where that leads, and it hasn't been any place good. And secondly, because of what Ascension Day represents, which is the enthronement day, the coronation day of King Jesus as the Lord of life and as the head of the church. And I think there's kind of a connection between the two, between kind of the loss of Ascension Day as a regular Christian holiday and the rise of the, the modern, weak-willed, effeminate, uh, evangelifish churches that pass for Christianity in today's world, because they both have to do with a recognition of supreme authority of Christ over every area of life, right? One way affirms it, and the other way denies it, or at least ignores it when it's inconvenient. And the Apostle Paul kind of hit on this human inclination of feigned ignorance when he said in Romans chapter 1, he said, oh, they know the truth about God, because he's made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew him, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And did you notice kind of the order of that? The apostle Paul 
says here that we are, uh, we're living in a world in which truth from God is literally breaking out all around us, but humanity is busy covering it up and hiding it and suppressing it and keeping it from being prominent and, and dominant in our thinking. And the nature of the truth that's being suppressed is the existence of a holy and sovereign God of eternal power and majesty who created mankind and has the sovereign right to determine the boundaries of right and wrong. And everybody knows that whether they want to admit it or not. Now, admittedly, for our part as 21st century Americans, we don't have much familiarity with the ideals of monarchy and the divine right of kings because we, we don't have any real firsthand experience with it, right? We've all grown up in a democratic federal republic. But if you happen to watch uh, Charles III being crowned, what you saw was that the coronations point to the sacred nature of the monarchy, and they're, they're packed with religious symbolism and imagery that intentionally bind together the church and the state in and through the person of the monarch. Uh, and they clearly proclaim the source of all that power and authority come from God. Because if you notice at their coronations, kings are not simply crowned and enthroned, but they're actually consecrated. They're, they're set apart and they're, they're anointed. They're dedicated to the service of God and of their subjects. And in the very same way, the ascension is the, the triumphal act that crowns both the royal and priestly ministries of Jesus as our Messiah. Uh, a coronation in which simultaneously Jesus as David's rightful heir ascends the throne and at the same time as our great high priest, he makes the final presentation of his atoning sacrifice. Uh, and not in a, an earthly copy of the Holy of Holies, but in the actual one in heaven. And completing the direct fulfillment of that prophecy from Daniel 7 that I read to you, behold with the clouds of heaven, right? Those same clouds that took Jesus up out of sight, there came one like a son of man. And remember guys, that was Jesus' most common way of referring to himself. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And so you see, in that, that vision, the Son of Man surrounded with these clouds approaches the Ancient of Days. He comes to the Father in heaven and he's given that dominion and that everlasting kingdom. And notice that the prophecy doesn't show the Messiah's rule beginning with an earthly reign, but quite specifically with a heavenly one. Because you see, if Jesus had just stayed here on earth and tried to claim a kingship down here, then biblically and prophetically speaking, he wouldn't have been the Messiah. Because the true Son of God was prophesied to ascend into heaven, into the presence of God, and from there to be given his reign. And so making his ascension, the triumphal coronation parade where Jesus demonstrates not just to the tiny nation of Israel and not just to 11 ragtag disciples, but to the entire cosmos that he has done what every good king in the ancient world was expected to do. And that was to save his people from their enemies. Right? So that's the first duty of any good government, right? It is to, to see the protection and the well-being of their people. And so... Now Jesus, having defeated all the powers of sin and death and hell, he now makes his ascent to the throne, and he does it, as one commentator said, just like the Davidic kings of old made their ascent back to Jerusalem after a successful military campaign with the spoils of war and a train of captives in tow. Actually, the Bible talks about, too, in Colossians 2, it says it like this, 
says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. And he's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And then even along these same lines, Ephesians 4 says, When he, meaning Jesus, ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended to the lower regions, to the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And so now, having accomplished all of these kingly acts, Jesus approaches the Ancient of Days and He's crowned with splendor and with honor. And, and although we're, we're still awaiting his return along with the, the full and final manifestation of his kingship, brothers and sisters, on Ascension Day, we proclaim that his is a universal reign, and it is one that is supreme over every prince, every potentate, every would-be president on the face of this planet. And, and please hear me this morning, as I, I've said a couple times already in Sunday school and Bible study, we don't need to wait for some coming day when Jesus' reign will begin. It's in place right now, in spite of any appearance to the contrary. And now that he's on the throne, seated at the right hand of the Father, we can be assured that his sacrifice on our behalf was the last one that will ever be needed. Right? Listen to this explanation from Hebrews 10. We just read this. Every priest stands daily to sacrifice, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And brothers and sisters, that's you and me. And this is the part of Ascension Day I was telling the folks in Sunday school this year that really struck me differently than it had before in previous years, because I think in some ways, the part that's even more compelling than the idea of Jesus' kingship is the picture of his high priesthood in these texts. And, and just kind of parenthetically, this is, this is one of the reasons, guys, it's so important to have a good working understanding of the Old Testament. Because you can't really fully appreciate all the implications of Ascension Day unless you have an understanding of that Levitical priesthood uh, and of how Jesus' first followers would have viewed all of this. So let me just explain it to you kind of just briefly. You see, we already know that the early Gentile church affirmed right away that Jesus' death on the cross represented the, the sacrifice of atonement and, and the act whereby our sins are fully and finally forgiven. But for Jewish believers, for those early followers of Jesus, they still would have been expecting just a little bit more so that they wouldn't have just wanted, they actually needed all of these events of Eastertide that we've been looking at uh, over these last 50 days from the resurrection all the way up to and including our Lord's ascension back to heaven. One Hebrew scholar put it like this. He said, coming from the context of Israel's temple culture, it would have struck most Jewish believers as oddly incomplete to say that the cross was all there was to Jesus' ritual of sacrifice. As anyone in the ancient world knew, the penitent sinner needed a further step in the ritual of atonement. Not just the sacrifice to be slain, 
But listen to this, but a high priest to bear the sacrificial blood into the presence of God. And he continues, this is the clearest parallel to the annual ritual of the Day of Atonement. When the sacrifice for the people's sins was killed on the great altar outside the temple doors, that was only the first part of the ritual. To the Jewish ears, the claim that the crucifixion alone was the sacrifice of atonement would have sounded like saying the sacrifice had been slain, but then just left to lie there. And so what's the next step in the ritual? Well, from our Old Testament, we know the high priest had to take some of that blood from the sacrifice, ascend the steps of the temple, and physically enter into the sanctuary of the Lord, where Leviticus 16 tells us then he's to take an incense pan full of burning coals from the altar from before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground incense and bring them into the inner curtain. And to put the incense on the fire before the Lord so that a cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat above the testimony. And so you have, to, you have to kind of try to picture this in your mind that on the day of atonement on Yom Kippur, the high priest would, would step up into that billowy cloud vanishing from the sight of the people and from those watching throngs in the temple. And then he'd proceed into the Holy of Holies where there in the presence of God, he would present the blood of the sacrifice and complete that ritual and while he's interceding for the people. But listen to this from scripture. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. And he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by what? By his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so they're outwardly unclean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he's died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Right? And so you see, just like that human high priest would then reemerge coming back down through those clouds of incense in the front of the earthly holy of holies, returning in the same way that the crowd saw him leave and bringing back with him the assurance of salvation to the people. We're told now... On Ascension Day, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way you saw him go into heaven. And so just as the angels proclaimed to the disciples as they stood on the Mount of Olives and today on this Ascension Sunday, we look forward to our Lord Jesus once again coming back in the exact same way that he left. 
So we're told, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then those who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in what? In the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And brothers and sisters, I say to you today in Jesus' name, be encouraged. Because unlike our, our brothers and sisters across the pond who constantly pray God save the king over their human sovereign, we await the turn, return of a savior king. And whether that day is today or decades into the future, the good news, the great news, is that we have a king who is both David's heir and heaven's high priest, who lives not only to fight for us and to pray for us, but to be the atoning sacrifice for us that opens the very throne room of heaven to the likes of you and me. Hallelujah, brothers and sisters. Christ is risen. God, our Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your Son, our Savior. We thank you that he is not only David's heir, but the high priest who is now seated at your right hand in glory. Uh, we know, Father, there were no seats in the temple because the priest's work never ended. But once your Son made the, the once and forever sacrifice, he sat down at your right hand to, to pray for us, to speak on our behalf. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for that. We thank you that he's a high priest who knows the things that we go through, that sees our heart, that knows our pain. And so we ask, Father, that you would send us forth this week uh, with a sure knowledge of that, that you would make us bold in our witness. Uh, and Father, we ask that if there's even one among us in this moment that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, that you would surprise them by the power and reality of your presence, that you would uh, open their eyes and their hearts. And Father, we thank you for this message of the gospel that's gone forth this morning. Trusting in you, Lord, that you'll accomplish all that you purpose it to, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And would you please stand for the Apostles' Creed and for our closing hymn. And brothers and sisters, let's confess together publicly what we believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.